Pantry Studio production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Prom night. A night most younger people usually look forward to as a rite of passage that slowly begins adulthood. It's usually a night filled with magic and memories that are never forgotten. It was May 18, 1991, a Saturday. The flowers were in bloom and the birds sang as winter bounced to spring in the small Appalachian town of Paintsville, Kentucky, nestled in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. As the night fell, so would heartbreak. It had rained that day about two-tenths of an inch with temperatures that were around 70. A typical spring day in anywhere USA. This was the kind of town where nothing all that bad ever really happened. And then, a tragedy at Paintsville Lake that would leave so many wondering for so long, three decades as a matter of fact. Some say it was an accident. Many others would say, hell no, it was murder, plain and simple. In the end, though, two would be dead. April Renee Pennington, who only five days earlier had turned 16, and Timothy Stambo, he was only 24 years young. What you are about to hear may sound like a work of fiction woven in intricate webs of astounding inconsistencies and moments that scream, that can't be right. But oh, according to those you'll hear from, it is right. And if it is, there's something wrong. This is Episode 1, The Tragedy at Paintsville Lake, The Mountain Mystery of April Renee Pennington. I will be the last to fall. I won't shed a tear for them to see. There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. There are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Long. Losing someone that we love is never easy, but when a child is lost, I honestly can't begin to comprehend that level of grief and despair that has to be associated with it. 
I can only imagine that the memories that we cling to must be more important than ever before. I remember uh, going into the delivery room and her doctor hadn't made it over from his office yet at Paul B. Hall Medical Center. And uh, when April came out, I bent over and looked at her and she had all this long, dark hair. And I said, there's my April Renee. I named her right there. And uh, they had her in the little room where they keep the babies at and they would bring them out to let the moms feed them and stuff. And I remember standing in the hallway at the door waiting for my little black-haired baby girl to be handed to me, and I wouldn't let her go back into the nursery. That's Sharon, April's mom. You know, being a proud dad, I know that we all love to talk about how special our kids are, because they are. April grew up. She was happy. She, You could tell she was a jokester from, from day one. Um, I remember... Uh, one time when I'd stopped at the grocery store and to get get her some soda and she uh, saw a bird laying in the middle of the road on the double yellow line. She demanded at age two for me to get out and get that bird. And the bird was already dead. And I told her, I said, April, I said, that bird's done went to heaven. She says, you, you wouldn't go get that bird and now it's dead. So she cried for a day or two and then uh, Another thing that she, I remember her doing is I had lost my driver's license. She was about three years old at this time. I couldn't find my driver's license nowhere. So I went over and paid to get me a new driver's license, and I went back to the house, and I was changing her, her crib bed, and I found my driver's license underneath the mattress. So I said, April. I said, I didn't want to, what was you doing with Mommy's license? She says, I just wanted to sleep with you. So she had my driver's license in there. And then, you know, she would take and uh, play hide and seek and climb underneath the sink, underneath the cabinet in the sink, and she would hide. Scared me to death. I didn't know what happened. And then I heard a little giggle, and I went in there and looked, and there she was. I said, April, don't scare Mommy like that no more. She said, I was playing hide and seek. She grew up as many did and had a sensitive side to her personality. She loved people, especially those who were close to her, her family, her friends. And she had a fierce passion about that love. And sometimes, as is with most kids who have sisters or brothers, will watch out. Although April loved in a very strong way, when she became upset, it was on. She would have some hot friends that come over, you know, because I was that age. And then I remember once she made me mad and I took a pair of uh, school scissors and cut her bangs off all the way to the scalp. And yes, she about killed me on that one. That's Timothy Pennington, April's younger brother. He was only 10 years old when she died. But I asked him, as far as the haircutting incident goes, how did that come about? Because I cannot imagine any teenage girl letting her younger brother cut her hair. Well, it turns out that she was asleep. And yes, there was hell to pay when she woke up, you can bet on it, but she was asleep to start with. It sounds as though April had a very happy childhood. She loved her family, her friends, animals, and she would stand up for what she believed in. She was a devoted and passionate friend that left an indelible mark. Then came the high school years at Johnson Central. A massive, 
Class 4A school that was fed by each elementary school in Johnson County, and oh, there were several of them. A high school. Many would go back if they could, as long as they could take what they've learned back with them. Good and bad memories all mixed up together in the same spot. It seems for most people that the biggest problems that they had in high school had to do with breaking up with somebody that they were dating or seeing. Of course, time marches on, and as adults, we learned what big problems were really like. But apparently, April was beginning to have some real problems, some serious problems. Yeah, she had the breakup thing going on too, but there was something else. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Let's back up. Let's go back to a time of that first love. You know the kind. White picket fences, stars in your eyes, that first kiss, holding hands. You know, true love. April had that experience, and for the purpose of this interview, we'll call him John. So, how was John with April when they first got together? At first, uh, it was good. John was very attentive to April, very sweet to her. Um, I had no problem kind of everything that a mother hoped that a potential suitor for her daughter would be. Yes, absolutely. But most of us know how these high school romances turn out, at least a great deal of the time. And it wouldn't be long before there would be trouble coming up in that paradise. Coming up, Sharon remembers the first time she felt something was wrong with April. Hi, and thanks for listening to The Mountain Mysteries. Let me ask you a question. Do you love audiobooks? Then you're going to want to hear The Vilcabamba Prophecy, a Nick Randall novel by Robert Raposa. Nick Randall is an archaeologist who believes mankind isn't alone on Earth. When a mysterious benefactor funds his research, he departs to find the lost city of Vilcabamba, hidden deep in the Amazon. Randall believes the city holds proof that his controversial theories are true. Upon arriving at the ruins, he mysteriously disappears. Randall's beautiful daughter Samantha learns of her father's disappearance from his mentor, Francisco Andrade, who pleads for her help. An accomplished archaeologist herself, Sam, must decide if she will set aside her career and search for the man she blames for her mother's death. But someone else is looking for her father as well. If audiobooks aren't your thing, that's cool. If you'd like to get back into the program a little quicker, simply jump ahead to about the 15 minute and 49 second mark. Chapter 1 Dr. Nicholas Randall could feel the noose-like effect of the humidity choking the breath from his body. Perspiration slicked down his back like a sudden waterfall forming after a heavy spring rain. The conditions were unbearable. But he pushed onward, and ever deeper into the Amazon. Normally, he would have made this trip in the cooler, drier months. But his benefactor had been specific. The trip had to be made 
immediately, or the funding would be forfeited. So Randall and his small group from the University of Lima found themselves slodging through the lush vegetation during the hottest and wettest time of the year. They traveled without speaking, the dwindling sunlight fading through the foliage. Once considered a gifted archaeology student, Randall was now deemed an outcast in the field for his controversial theories. Randall believed that someone, or something, had intervened in the development of the indigenous population and had helped propel their technology forward at a staggering rate. He had first conceived the theory as a graduate student on a field assignment almost 30 years ago. It had almost destroyed his career. In fact, had it not been for his longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Francisco Andrade, Randall would have been forced out of the field years ago. Only Francisco's support had made this trip possible, and Randall realized that this excursion was his last chance to redeem his reputation. Now, he found himself deep in the rainforest with only his guide, a linguistics expert from the University of Lima, and his two graduate students, Philip Drew and Mike Gomes, in tow. They needed to find the ruins quickly, or they would be forced to make camp in the middle of the jungle before they were consumed by the encroaching darkness. Making matters worse, they had lost contact with their home base days ago and were running low on supplies. Finally, there's the entrance up ahead, Ernesto said a linguistic specialist from the university. Ernesto was clearly uncomfortable being out in the middle of the jungle during the summer. He made no effort to mask his feelings as he swatted away a mosquito and threw his pack to the ground. Randall stopped next to Ernesto, rubbing his aching muscles. He strained to see the small opening in an otherwise solid wall of jungle vines and plants, but eventually spotted it. The entrance was carved into the solid rock in the side of a mountain. After days of searching, they had finally arrived. Amaro Angara, the local guide who had led them to this site, paused, staring into the dark opening. His body language spoke of his reluctance to enter. Ernesto, ask Amaro if he's going in, Randall said the salty taste of dirt and sweat entering his mouth as he spoke. After a brief exchange, Ernesto replied, He says it's forbidden for his people to enter the sacred ruins. Phil and Mike, come with me. Ernesto, wait here with Amaro. We'll scout inside the ruins and then figure out where to set up camp. The three ventured through the small opening. The passageway wound its way down a twisting ledge, which had been carefully cut into the stony surface. Randall's pulse quickened as he examined the tunnel. He ran his hand along the rock wall, marveling at how the surface felt as smooth as glass. One thought entered his mind. This wasn't done with primitive tools. He stepped back from the wall and shined his light straight down the passageway. He realized that the opening was a perfect square, the corners fitting together with a precision unlike any he had seen in past ruins. You can get your copy of the Vilcabamba Prophecy, written by Robert Raposa, wherever audiobooks are sold. There's also a link to that down below in the show notes. And now, we return to Tragedy at Paintsville Lake, 
The Mountain Mystery of April Pennington April Pennington She was in love with life and people, but there was this one guy that really stood out to her. But not everyone was in love with April. How old was April when you first started noticing a difference in the way she acted? Fifteen. She would go over there and uh, to John's house. Either he would come and pick her up or his mother would. And uh, she just, her demeanor started changing. She, she was like she didn't want to tell me stuff. Not quite as open as she was. No, no. And then a week before she died was really bad because she was coming home from her regular friends. She was coming home. She was putting blankets over her window in her bedroom. And I didn't quite know why, but there was a girl... She had been threatening April the whole time, and I wasn't aware of it until about a week before she died. We'll call the girl making the threats Brenda. Made up a name for her, but she's very real indeed. She and April had words several times, and according to witness accounts, had come to blows at least once. So what's the reason for the animosity? According to what April told me, and according to what April's friends told me, it's because April was so pretty and smart and was well-liked in school, and Brenda wasn't. At some point or another, we're all jealous of something or someone else in our lives. It's human nature. It doesn't go away just with a wave of a magic wand. But if it's not kept in check or left unchecked, that jealousy will lead to deeper more severe problems. I'm not a psychologist, and you don't have to be to recognize red flags when they start to fly. And that's exactly what happened with April and Brenda. So I asked April one day, I said, April, I said, what does this Brenda look like? So we got in the truck, and we went over to McDonald's. And Brenda come out of McDonald's, was walking down the sidewalk around, around McDonald's, and April said, there she is. The girl had 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 her hair colored dark. Now, Brenda was a blonde, a dirty blonde. Mm -hmm. She had cut her hair off short and dyed it dark brown, almost black. Which was the color of April's. Uh Uh-huh, and uh, April didn't want me to stop. She said, Mom, whatever you do, don't stop. Just go right on, don't stop. And that's all she would say about that, but she was terrified of this girl. Now, the next event sounded like something straight out of a Final Destination movie. When Sharon told me about this, I actually went to the individual that walked in on this happening, and she stopped it. Now, unfortunately, she wasn't able to be interviewed at the time, but she did tell me that it happened just like Sharon said. Uh, One of the altercations that took place uh, was told to me by a girl that actually stopped it before it happened. Uh, She said she'd went in the bathroom downstairs at Johnson Central, and Brenda had April hemmed up against the wall in the bathroom and had a flare gun with her, going to use it on April. She made Brenda quit and took April and the flare gun up to the office, which nothing was done. A flare gun? What the hell? Well, that night at Paintsville Lake, April wasn't the only one to lose her life. Timothy Hobart Stambo from Sitka, Kentucky, 24 years old and by all accounts a great guy 
He got along with about everyone that knew him. He was a little bit on the shy side, but a good guy nonetheless once you got to know him. And if you needed help, Tim would be the first standing in line to give a hand. Well, you know how living in a small town goes. And if you don't, let me enlighten you. If you don't know what you're doing, someone else does. The rumor mills in small towns are like the internet. Always going and somebody's constantly stirring that pot. Now, in this particular case, the gossip at the time was that April and Tim had something going on. What it was was like that of an older brother and younger sister. Tim would stop at the place of business that the boy, her boyfriend at that time, or I thought was her boyfriend at that time, the place of business to get parts and stuff because his brother worked at a garage right around the corner. And him and April become friends because he didn't have much money and he come from like a poor family, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's the type of people that April really gravitated to, people that she could help and, and, and be confident in. She looked up to him as like a big brother. April had a lot of friends, no doubt. Remember how we told you about John? April's love interest? Well, now we're going to go into a little more detail. People around the small town of Paintsville knew him fairly well, or they thought so anyway. His family was somewhat prominent in the small community and owned and operated several business interests at the time. John himself was said to be, by some, a pretty nice guy, the guy next door, that you like to hang out with. Others said that he was your typical teenage guy and could have a mean and wild streak. Ah, remember those small towns. If they're not talking about one, it's another. The relationship between April and John did appear to be uh, somewhat rocky at times, but it was a first love kind of thing after all. Rocky? Well, maybe a little more than rocky. An email was sent to April's mom, Sharon, about an extremely specific memory that the sender said she had while she was in Johnson Central High School. This girl shared a class with April. In the email that was sent June 4th, 2010, nearly 20 years later, she wrote, Hey Sharon, I misplaced your email address on this ridiculous desk of mine. I just wanted to share a few details, things I remembered from having classes with and being friends with April. There was definitely no love lost between her and Brenda, that's for sure. Apparently, Brenda had slept with April's boyfriend, John. So there was, understandably, issues between them. I never personally heard Brenda make threats, but through others, including April herself that said Brenda threatened to kill her. I did hear Brenda pass April in the hall one day and call her a slut or a whore. It's been a while, so I don't remember which one it was exactly. If it had not been for an approaching teacher, April might have responded, but she only gave her a dirty look. April and I sat together and shared a table in one of our classes, so we talked each day. She came in one Monday with a bruise on her wrist, and I asked her, How'd you get that? She responded, Oh, fighting with John. We shared boyfriend troubles and stories. We both had boyfriends at the time that tried to control and be possessive. Shortly before April's death, maybe a week or so, she told me that John was driving her crazy. 
They had broken up and he would not leave her alone. She said that he called her constantly, was always asking people what she was doing, and would show up where she would be hanging out. She said that he wanted to get back together, but she didn't want to. She was tired of fighting with him. She had said a few times that he was jealous and tried to control her. It's been a long time, so this is about all I can remember. Not sure if it's any help, but I really hope whoever is responsible for April's death is brought to justice. I could not imagine living all these years with no answer if it was my child. You are a strong woman. Good luck. And then the sender signed her name. Now on a personal note, I know that sender. I know who she is. And I trust her explicitly. Many think that jealousy showed its head, and if John had had enough, could he have done the unthinkable? Possibly. We're told that John was never questioned about the events the night that April or Timothy died, and nearly 30 years later hasn't been to this day. Prom night, 1991. It was May 18th. There was a light mist and rain falling that day as winter's dying breath clung desperately to the hope of stopping spring. It was a day that April looked forward to. A weekend with friends, prom, and memories that she would carry on with her throughout life. Her mother would never forget this day. It would be the last time she saw her daughter alive. April was all giddy and smiling and, and just being April. And she told me, she said, Mom said, uh, there's a houseboat party at the lake. And she said, Tim, Tim is going to come up and pick me up and we're going to just go out and ride around. We may go to that houseboat party. So Tim come up in his truck and he backed in the driveway and April went out and she was wearing this white shirt, white t-shirt. It was an extra large shirt because she didn't like things tight. Mm -hmm. She didn't like to show her breast or anything like that. She liked to be comfortable. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was wearing a pair of blue jean shorts and her K-Swiss tennis shoes and her necklace and a ring. And she went out the door and uh, I said, y'all be careful now. And she said, oh, we will. And her and Tim and the other boy at that time that was with him, who was also out here at the lake when they passed away, they all waved at me and smiled and went on down, down the road. Imagine if you will, or if you can, if only just for a moment, that you're at home. You believe that your child is out having the time of their life. You're waiting on them to come home, expecting to hear all about how prom went, the music, the food, the dancing, the formal wear that she was wearing, and how her date went, and what they did with their friends. 
you can't help but smile remembering such memories that you made yourself. You know that times like these rarely repeat themselves. That is what makes them special. You look forward to what they'll do with their lives, who they'll help, how much they'll accomplish. You see yourself in them, going on to make you proud, a part of you that will live on. Then, you hear it. A knock on the door. I remember a knock on the door around 1, one fifteen time frame and I got up and I opened the door and there was the sheriff which is uh, Gene Sire which I did recognize him but there was another guy with him that told me he was the coroner J.R. Frisbee and they just blatantly come out and said there's been an accident April she's dead just like that it may sound cold and callous I'll be the first one to admit I've never had to deliver a death notification as a police officer. I've never been a police officer. But I do have a lot of respect for them, and that's just one of the reasons why. But we always have to remember this is not an episode of Law & Order. This is real life, as real as it gets. Sometimes ripping off the band-aid quicker makes more sense than trying to peel it off slow and easy. Because the truth is, sometimes there is no easy. All my emotions just went blank, just like, just blank. I can't even begin to imagine. Tim also recalls the night he got the news. I got word I was staying with my dad. We lived over in Davis Branch, and uh, I remember we were sleeping. And I won't think I was sleeping in the floor at the time, and he was in his bed. And we got a knock on the door, and it was the police department in the corner. They just talked to Dad, and that's the first time I ever seen him cry. You know, I really didn't know what was going on. How much can any one person take? Now, Sharon has to go to Paul B. Hall Regional Medical Center in Paintsville, Kentucky, to make positive identification. I was uh, driven to the hospital by my next-door neighbor. And when I get over to the hospital, they had, there wasn't... None of the group out there, friends, family members or anything. Tim's truck wasn't there. I remember the parking lot was, was bare, and I remember going in and being escorted to a seat in the waiting area. And then they come out and got me and took me to this little room, which to this day is a totally different room. It's been, the whole hospital's been renovated, but I can take you to that room to this day. And when you see what I saw, it's embedded in your mind forever. I walked into this room and there was a gurney. And on this gurney, there was something covered up with a white sheet. And they just pulled the sheet down. And when they pulled the sheet down, I stood there still numb. I went over and I touched April's face. I touched her arms, it was cold, it was clammy. She had clothes on. Now, mind you, the ER doctor said that when she was brought in to the hospital, 
in the cab of that truck of Tim's, and they went and got her out. Now, April was just about five foot two, about 135 pounds. It took him, two nurses in the ER, and a security guard to get that little body out of that truck and put it on that gurney. She had no clothes on. So somebody had put clothes on the body. She had jeans on. The shirt that she had on was not the shirt that she left in. Was she found in the lake nude? I'm assuming, I, I don't know. I don't know. I was never told. What did the shirt say? The shirt that they put on her said, you suck. Did you see anything on April's body that would make you say, wait a minute? Well, the first thing, like I said, this is imprinted in your brain. I mean, it's something that you cannot ever remove. You can't unsee this? No. I saw a place on her lip, her upper lip. I saw a dark spot on her left jaw. It looked like a bruise? It looked like a bruise to me. You okay. know, I'm no do- I wasn't no doctor back then. Mm-hmm. And then I saw a red mark going around her neck. Around her neck. A fine red mark. A piece of, uh, it looked to me like a, a piece of her ear gone, where her earring was at. There was no, um, her hair when she left the house that night, her hair was wet and French braided back by my sister-in-law mm-hmm. and a hair brat put in it. But when I got to the ER, the hair was all hanging down, and it was dry around the front. Now, remember, we've been operating on the assumption that April was found in the lake. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Now, let's talk a little bit about the T-shirt that was found on April's body. The one that said... You suck. That's what the shirt said. And there's pictures of it. Oh, Sharon's got them. As a matter of fact, she still has the shirt, too. Now, do you remember that Foreman Brothers video I was telling you about that's all over YouTube right now? Well, one of the people that appeared in that video identified that shirt as belonging to someone else that was there the night the drownings, end quote, happened. During that interview, during the documentary that the Foreman brothers conducted, the woman we're calling Brenda showed up at their request and for the first time in 30 years spoke on record publicly about April and answered whose shirt that was that said you suck. It's Chris's. Whose? It's Chris's. Chris. Who's Chris? Chris. He's the one that took her to the hospital. He used to wear it shirt all the time. Chris, he was one of the people at the Paintsville Lake the night that April and Tim died. 30 years. And now, some people are starting to come forward and tell the story of what happened. If we can believe it. That's right, there's more than one. There's two. And you're going to hear from the second one coming up here in just a few moments. Now, if you'd like to check out the entire documentary, it's called Paintsville, The Story of April Pennington, Chasing Evil, and it's available on YouTube. It's definitely worth a watch and definitely worth your time. I've posted a link to it in the episode notes. 
Now, Sharon did eventually get that shirt that April was wearing that night back into her possession again, but the way she got it, well, that raised some eyebrows. And I automatically said that's not her shirt. So I got to looking for her shirt, which showed up in the back of her dad's car on Davis Branch about a month later. Showed up where? In the back of her dad's car. He had a little car that had a hatchback in it, and uh, that shirt was found in the back of his car. And he immediately brought it to me. The shirt that she wore when she left. Yes. And the thing about this is that car, the hatchback, had only a certain way that you could open it. So I not everybody knew that? No. So whoever put the shirt in there... Had previous knowledge of the car and how to open the hatchback, yeah. So who was the other person that came forward and spoke? Well, her name was Joanna. At the time, she was 14 years old, and she was there. And once again, 30 years later, she finally comes forward. Now here, you need to be warned, the audio quality is rough. It was done on a handheld recorder. This individual came to Sharon after 30 years and said, let's meet. They met in a very busy and popular restaurant. It was done on a handheld recorder. I've tried to reduce some background noise, but I did reduce the length of the interview due to the quality while leaving the important parts in. So listen for a revelation about where April was really found. that's odd. You see, all this time, everyone thought that April was found out in the water with her body laying face down in the water, floating. But if you just heard Joanna, she said that April was found right on top of the rocks. Listen again carefully. Sharon asks her, how far out was she? And Joanna responds, she was right on top of the rocks. 
she wasn't found out in the lake after all. I don't know if that changes anything at all, and if it were to, what that would be, but it's certainly interesting. Why would somebody say that she was found in the water when she wasn't? Oh, and it turns out that Joanna wasn't quite finished yet either. On the way to the lake, we were talking, and April says to me, Joanna, if I die, this is the song I want played at my funeral. And I cannot remember the song's name. She said, if I was to die tonight, this is what I would want done. And she gave me the song's name and said she wanted to be cremated with her ashes spread across the sea, like some, some, somewhere. And I was like, don't talk like that, you know. She said, well, you never know. And I remember that plane is that. I mean, I do. After that, I actually asked Sharon if April had ever presented herself with any kind of gift. Some people can, well, what they call see. You can call it a psychic if you want or intuitive. Sharon said yes. As a matter of fact, April certainly did have gifts and proved it more than once. I just find it very unsettling that April told Joanna what she wanted at her funeral if she died that night. Coming up in just a few moments, we'll talk about what happened the night after Sharon had to go to the hospital to identify April's body. Things get even stranger. There were two different autopsies done, one conflicting the other, and things get even more strange when someone else steps in from the federal government. Coming soon to the Mountain Mysteries, it's a good old-fashioned ghost story. The Ghost of 22 Mine Road, the Mountain Mystery of Mamie Thurman. Logan, West Virginia is the setting. In 1932, she was found by a deaf mute and had her throat cut from ear to ear. Two shots to the head. And the trial that followed? That's almost a joke. Now, the legend is, is that you can park your car on the bottom of 22 Mine Road near Logan, West Virginia, just off U.S. Highway 119. Put it in neutral, take your foot off the brake, the car will actually go backwards up the hill, as though Mamie's actually trying to push you back to where her body was discovered near the top of the road. The problem with the urban legend is that it's true. Now, is it a gravity well? Is it an optical illusion? I don't know, but I can tell you that I've done this. It's happened, and... We will have links to videos on there where you can actually see different people doing this, and every time, it works. So who was Mamie Thurman? Who killed her? And why? That episode will be available for download on Friday, March 19th, so mark your calendars. Also coming very soon to the Mountain Mysteries. It's a mystery that's been in the making for over 70 years. Who killed Merrill Baldridge? a 17-year-old high school student in Prestonsburg who was murdered in cold blood in June of 1949. Now we get back into Tragedy at Paintsville Lake, the Mountain Mystery, 
of April Pennington. Hundreds of people showed up to April Renee Pennington's funeral, including John and many, many others. It's a testament to how much that April was loved, admired, and cared for. But Sharon was not satisfied with the findings of the first autopsy. Now, do you remember who you heard from earlier? April's younger brother, Timothy? Well, at this time, he had been serving in the United States military and was an MP. So, they came up with an idea. Timothy Pennington served with honor in the United States Armed Forces. Yes. Tell me, what did he do with this autopsy report? He took the autopsy report. Now, mind you, back then he was a military police officer. So he wanted to take the report to Fort Knox and show it to uh, a coroner in that area. And he told me that the coroner read the reports. I mean, he had the, the state police report, uh, the whole nine yards. He said the coroner told him that there would be no way in the world that he would rule her death in accidental drowning. Okay, so another coroner in another part of the state. He comes back and says that there's no way in the world that he would classify this as an accidental death or an accidental drowning. Well, that makes you think, doesn't it? Sharon had a second autopsy done as well. Well, the findings, like I said, the private one, I called her when I got the report and everything because this was privately done and privately paid for. And... Her medical legal opinion is a 16-year-old white female died of drowning, autopsied and buried. This is the legal opinion from the autopsy report before that she was just going by. Buried approximately four and a half months prior to this autopsy. The first autopsy said she had a blood alcohol. Um, according to the previous autopsy, is 0 0.10 grams per ethanol alcohol. It has been something that I've been looking into that when the body dies, it starts producing ethanol alcohol on the moment it dies. Do research. And um, she could not come to any other conclusion because of the fact that uh, there was bones and body parts missing. Um, the upper airways, the hythoid bone, the pineal gland was not there. Um, the larynx was not open. Wait a minute. The hyoid bone missing? Now, I'm not a doctor, but I actually did some research and looked this up, and I actually did speak to a physician. The hyoid bone almost never breaks or fractures on its own. It's always some kind of, quote, external force, end quote. Now, every bit of research that we've conducted shows, in some cases, extreme, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here without making you sick to your stomach? When people throw up hard enough, it can fracture. But he said most of the time when the hyoid bone breaks, that's a telltale sign of asphyxiation or strangulation. You know, as in somebody wrapped something around your throat and choked you to death. Now, I understand I'm not saying that that's what happened, but I am saying that it's really strange that we can't find out because it was missing. Why in the blue hell would somebody 
take that? Well, the only reason that you can think of is probably the only reason that I can think of. A few years after April's death, in 1993, I believe it was, October, Sharon went to the ER at Paul B. Hall and actually talked to the attending physician that night. His name was Dr. Oretta. Now, here's where the plot thickens. Again. He said it was the general consensus of the ER workers and staff that night that April did not drown. Don't take my word for it. Take his. She didn't drown, you know. Well, if she didn't drown, then what the hell did happen? Because that's a direct contradiction of what the initial report said. That her death was the result of freshwater drowning. Sharon has her theories, and Tim does as well. I think that my daughter and the bunch that she was with was riding through the plaza, and certain people found out that they were there and where they were going, and it was either out there hiding and wanted to do something that they shouldn't have been doing, whether it was a fight that got out of hand that resulted in the death, or whether it was just right out we're going to kill her and throw her in the water. Because the emergency room doctor again said that April had been dead a long time. I said, who died first? And when I asked him that question, I was wanting to know because I did not want my dog. I could not imagine April standing, sitting, swimming or whatever and seeing somebody drown in front of her knowing what type of child she was. He said she died first. I said, how long had she been dead? He said, for a very long time. I said, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes? He said, longer. But also in the report, it states that Tim Thambo's family, or that the people at in the, uh, that drove the ambulance that brought Tim Stambo to the hospital was upset despite the fact that they actually got a heartbeat on him before they got him to the hospital and the doctors and staff didn't do anything to help him. It's in the police report. Sharon actually provided me with a copy of the EKG. Sure enough, 70 beats per minute. That was Timothy Stambo's heartbeat. So why, when they got to the hospital, didn't they try to do something? Maybe he'd been under the water too long and he was brain dead? I, I, I don't know. But that's the thing about this particular case. There's a lot of that going around. The I don't knows. April's brother Timothy also has some thoughts himself on what he thinks happened. Well, I definitely 100% think, don't think that she drowned. You know, because number one is I remember seeing the autopsy in the mercy room photos. And she had a busted mouth. She had hair pulled out from behind her head. She had like a ligature thing around her neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the autopsy photo, she had all kind of bruises on her, you know. 
you don't get that from drowning. And secondly, you know, the other guy that passed away that night, I remember seeing him in the Jones Prestons and all of his knuckles was busted up. He had knots on his head, you know, and you don't get that from drowning. I mean, you can go out here, kill somebody, throw a bucket of water on them. Hey, I found them over here, you know, in the lake and they drowned. Well, all right, your words are good enough. You know, that's the way I feel that happened. I don't know what your opinion is, but personally, I'd like to think that life goes on after this one's over, that this simply isn't it. I would like to think that most of us probably would feel that way, that we don't want this just to be it and all of a sudden it's done and over. I know that I've had experiences that I can't explain, and I do know several people that have had the same and we've tried to explain them, but no. Sharon is one of those. Seems that she was visited by someone she knows. It was approximately six months after she passed away. I had went to bed and I had a water bed. And I remember the waterbed giving on the left-hand side like somebody had crawled in beside of me. I remember turning over, and there was April. And, I mean, I could smell her, her body odor. You know, I could just about taste it. It was in the bed give again, and the spirit went to the foot of the bed and turned around and says, Mom, don't go to the Paintsville Lake. Just like that, and just disappear. The thoughts that those who have left us behind, the people that we loved, come back to us. It's a comforting thought, and it's not an uncommon thought. Many people feel that. Many people experience it. The smell of perfume, or maybe some kind of a thing that you didn't expect to see, you actually run across. Our memories are powerful. Maybe almost as powerful as the love that created them. Whatever the fact is, there's one thing for certain. Tim and April have passed on. They're no longer with us, but they left an indelible mark on the lives of those people that they touched. And if there's anything that you take with you, I honestly believe it's love and those memories. So I've made myself, and I'll make you this promise. The Mountain Mysteries is and will be about those left behind, the people that are still here as well. It's, you know, not just about sudden deaths, but maybe it's about experiences that we can't explain, or maybe the people that are missing out there, and those of us who have no answers, those people who are clinging desperately to hope that their loved ones are still alive. We'll look into those things and bring as much attention to them as we can as well. If you have an idea, or if you'd like to discuss something with us, you can email me at thepantrystudio at yahoo.com. Any kind of experiences that you or a loved one has had, or maybe it's a missing person or loved one. Now, at the time of the recording of this episode, uh, there's a lot of tragedy going on right now in a small eastern Kentucky community called Jackson. It's in Breathitt County. A lot of severe and tragic flooding, which have cost a lot of people their homes and worldly possessions. And I'd just like to ask for you, the listeners, to pray for them. Pray for everyone. We can all find ourselves without in a matter of a heartbeat. Next week on The Mountain Mysteries, you've heard segments of the interviews with April's mom and her brother, Sharon and Tim. Next week, we are going to air those in their entirety. 
There's a lot of content there that I do not want you to miss, plus it's a better way to get to know who April was. You're also invited to join us on the Discord server. It's a great way to stay in contact with other folks that listen to the Mountain Mysteries and a great way to communicate back and forth about the episodes. And check us out on the Facebook page. It's under Facebook slash The Mountain Mysteries. Hello, I'm Chris Lone, your host for The Mountain Mysteries, and I wanted to step in to give you this update as quickly as possible. Sharon and I have been talking, and we have confirmed, uh, she has confirmed with me, that the Kentucky State Police have indeed opened, or rather reopened, this investigation, and it is now considered active. We've posted the toll-free phone number to that law enforcement agency in the show notes of this episode. So if you have any information, any at all, please call toll-free. You can give your tips anonymously or otherwise. The important thing is, is that they get all the information that they can so they can proceed with the investigation in a proper manner. Until next week, when we debut the interviews in their entirety concerning the Mountain Mystery of April Pennington, stay mysterious. If you enjoy the Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support the Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.